Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. Um, I'm your host, Keith Breckis, uh, broadcasting from the White Mountains of Arizona today. And uh, today I'm joined by a very special guest, and we're very happy to have on Gordon Lafer, who is uh, the author of The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. Um, He's a political economist and uh, professor at the University of Oregon's Labor and Education Research Center, so it should be a very good interview. Really looking forward to it. How are you doing this evening, Gordon? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Oh, great. Wonderful. Certainly appreciate it. Thank you for taking your time to uh, share with us your insight and um, and your latest book. Um, and so maybe before we get into some of the questions about the book, maybe um, if, if you want to give a little more background information about yourself or why you wrote the book, um, feel free to do that, and then we could jump into some other questions. Sure. Uh, I'm a professor at University of Oregon, and uh, in 2009 and 10, I worked. I was on leave working in the Congress in Washington, D.C. on labor policy. And I came back to university at the start of 2011, and there started to be a lot of bills passed in legislatures that were doing away with unions, lowering the minimum wage, uh, doing away with the right to paid sick leave, all kinds of things like that. And in every place, people thought, oh, this comes from this particular legislator in this state, or it's trying to deal with a particular problem in this state. But I started to see the same things popping up in a lot of different places. And that's the thing that really got me interested in doing this research and trying to see where was all this coming from, how was it all happening at the same time in a lot of different states, and then started realizing that it all traced back to this, a handful of the same big corporate lobbies and that none of it really came out of individual states. So that's kind of the the path that ended up with writing this book. Sure. Yeah, and I think some of our listeners are probably familiar with some of those groups and we'll probably talk about them a little bit later, too, for sure. But uh, I know um, sort of in the media or in the political landscape, a lot of times we hear a lot about the Citizens United decision. So when the U.S. Supreme Court passed that, America's political landscape, of course, did change. But you write in your book that the change wasn't as sudden as we might think. Uh, what had been happening over the prior several decades that anticipated such a dramatic victory for corporate interests? Well, I mean, business has always had more power than probably anything else because money matters a lot in politics. And a lot of things have changed over the years that have made the power of money even greater. Part of it is that elections got more expensive, you know, starting with TV and then the Internet and and very detailed kind of polling, a lot of consultants. So when campaigns are more expensive, it makes politicians more dependent on the people who have the money. And it makes people who can raise large amounts of money more powerful in politics. So, and there was, you know, slowly kind of chipping away at the things that um, there were restrictions on billionaires or big corporations spending as much money as they would want on politics. So that was going already in that direction. But the Citizens United decision really marked a huge change in politics. Uh, most people, if they think about politics at all, just think about the federal government in D.C., which I understand why. 
but it made a huge change in the states too. There were 22 states that had laws before that that limited how much money corporations could spend in politics, and the Supreme Court decision overturned all of that. And the the you know labor was always way outspent by business, but the big corporate lobbies increased their political spending by six times, by 600% in the years after Citizens United. And they focused a lot of that money on the states, partly because nobody else was paying attention, partly because money goes a lot further in the states. You know, you, most legislative races you can buy for 50000 bucks, 100000 bucks, or sometimes much less. So there was a flood of money into state politics organized by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and some other big business lobbies just a couple of months after the Supreme Court decision in 2010, and it made a huge change in state politics. Sure. And I know, um, too, your book presents, uh, I'd say, an overall analysis of state-level legislative initiatives in the first five years of Citizens United and is therefore able to capture trends that we might miss by looking at individual bills. And what are you seeing in the states? Well, it's kind of scary because you see a lot of different pieces all pushed by the same organizations, which is the Chamber of Commerce, the Association of Manufacturing, the Federation of Independent Business, um, and at the state level, it's mostly coordinated by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And they're pushing things that most people don't pay attention to until it runs into your own personal life, but that affect many different aspects of our lives, both as citizens dependent on public services and as workers. So it includes lowering the minimum wage, lowering wages for waiters and waitresses, and making it harder to keep the tips that you earn if you're a waiter and waitress, making it harder to sue over race and sex discrimination, um, making it harder to get unemployment insurance if you're out of work, um, doing away with the right to paid sick leave or any kind of control over your scheduling, lowering wages in the construction industry, and cutting funding for a lot of services that rich people don't need, but that middle class and working people and, and poor people do need, like libraries, which in, in most places are the only place you can get free access to the Internet if you don't have enough money to get that at home, public transportation, public health services, and public education. So it's really um, it's kind of remarkable how ambitious their agenda is and how widespread it is. But when you have unlimited money, you can have a very ambitious agenda and throw a lot of staff at it. Yeah, and I know, too, um, with the current political climate, there's a lot of focus on the national policy and, you know, of course, with Trump and other things going on. And so to people that are focused on that, um, the question they might ask is, why should we be worried about or be looking at what happens at the state level when there's so much to worry about on the national level? So I've, <clears throat> I think there's a couple of answers to that. One is sure. the number one thing I would say is not so much state versus federal, but just look behind the individuals. Like look behind, you know, whatever you think of Trump, the kind of circus and drama of Trump, uh, or any anybody else behind the politicians, behind even the parties, to say what is the real power in American politics that determines what kinds of laws get passed. Right? I mean, there's nobody who controls everything. The business lobbies don't control everything, and they don't always win. But they're by far the single biggest power in American politics. The budget of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for instance, is bigger than the budget of either the National Democratic or Republican Party. And they're pursuing their own agenda. They're not cheerleaders for one party or another. So we need to be smart about who is it really that's changing the laws that shape what our economic lives are like. 
So that's the number one thing I would say is to not get fixated on the circus of personalities. And the second thing is, I mean, most people are just bored to death by state politics. I mean, even people who are not bored to death by all politics are bored to death by state politics. Only a quarter of Americans can even name who their state legislator is. And I'm not surprised. But <clears throat> that means that people with moneyed interests have an almost free hand to rewrite the laws. And, you know, a lot of things that used to be the power of the federal government have become the power of state government, starting with President Reagan. The states set minimum wage, they set labor law, they set unemployment insurance. Even when money comes from the federal government for things like Medicaid or, or education, how that money is spent is determined by the states. So what we've had is like a nationalization of state politics, where instead of each state really coming up with its own ideas, we have ideas being hatched by corporate lobbyists in D.C. or New York or wherever their offices are, and then spread out across the country. And, you know, part of that is part of the reason why the corporations have invested in the states is because so many more laws are passed in the states. And partly that's because there's no filibuster and partly because nobody's paying attention. So the U.S. Congress might pass, you know, three or four significant laws in a year. Thousands of laws are passed in the states. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's, you know, and like you said, uh, sometimes you have groups like Alex basically putting out a template and, and running it in, you know, there are 30 different states and trying to get it through. Um, and I know, too, um, your book shows that legislative attacks on public employee unions in Wisconsin and other states were supported by some of the country's biggest corporations through their participation in the Alex Network and why would big private corporations, maybe even some of them not based in those states, spend time, money, and energy fighting public employee unions in places like Wisconsin and Ohio? Well, I, you know, I think it's a really critical question. I, maybe I should, like, back up a minute and just explain for listeners who may not know all of this what ALEC sure. is. Um, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, is a, a combination of several hundred of the biggest corporations in America and in the world. And they're companies that everybody knows, GM and Ford, Facebook, Google, Coca-Cola, uh, Amazon, all, all United Airlines, I mean, a lot, a lot of big Fortune 500 companies. The way it works is about a quarter of all state legislators in America are members of ALEC. They pay just 50 bucks a year in dues. The rest of the expenses are paid by the big corporations. They meet several times a year in fancy resorts where they sit in committees that are made up half of elected state legislators and half of corporate lobbyists, and they write bills together. And then all, all the bills have to be approved by the corporate members. And then those bills are taken and introduced in cookie-cutter fashion in state after state across the country. And then the same companies that write the laws contribute to those politicians' campaigns. They hire people to be experts on, you know, testifying in legislature or on TV. They spend their own money on ads on radio, TV, or Internet. So it's a very well-funded, very well-coordinated 50-state campaign. And this is how we have, you know, law after law after law in, in states all around the country that look like the same thing. And when we look at them, they may be introduced by one, mem you know, by one politician or another, but they're really coming from corporate lobbyists, and they become law because, all, because of all the money that is put behind them by these big corporate lobbies. And a lot of what ALEC does is like pay-to-play. It's bills that are designed to enrich a particular member company. So like Coca-Cola is active in ALEC, and they lobbied against limits on sugary soft drinks. 
tech companies are active in ALEC, and they lobby to stop cities from providing free broadband internet to residents. Um, there's, there are bail companies are members of ALEC, and they lobbied, uh, I'm sorry, payday loan companies are members, and they lobbied against a bill that would have said you can't charge more than 36% on payday loans. But then we have things like what you were mentioning, which is ALEC is at the forefront of the attack on public employee unions, on private sector unions too, but like when uh, Wisconsin public employees basically got their right to collective bargaining taken away in 2011, the head of the ALEC committee for labor policy that year was Kraft Foods. So you think, why does Kraft Foods care about public employees in Wisconsin? I don't think it's just that they want to get tax breaks for themselves. Some of it is that in places where public employees are the single biggest employer in a local labor market, it creates competitive pressure for non-union employers in the private sector to raise their own wages or benefits to meet the union standard. And I can give you an example from where I live. I live in Eugene, Oregon. It's about 200,000 people. Administrative workers at the University of Oregon, which is the biggest employer in town, get health insurance because they have a union and they're public employees. That means that other non-union private sector employers have to provide health insurance to their secretaries or else they have to know that the best people are going to go work at the university. It's not like a conspiracy. It's just how a competitive labor market works. So when they knock down public employees, it also has a spillover effect of lowering wages and benefits in the private sector as well. And I think that's one of the main goals of attacking public employee unions. Yeah, that makes sense. And, I, you know, I wouldn't have uh, maybe thought about it that way until, until somebody lays it out like that. And, it, you know, makes sociological and economic sense there. And I know another thing, uh, corporate interests often shun explicitly racial issues as irrelevant to their bottom line. But you actually found that many corporate goals are actually linked with racial disparities. Can you give us some examples of that? Sure. Um, for one thing, there are some explicit things like lobbying uh, to make it harder for people to sue over race and sex discrimination, lobbying to make it easier for companies to require you when you when you get a job to sign something waiving your right to go to court if you think you're fired unfairly or for reasons of discrimination and say you'll resolve any complaints within an arbitration system that the company controls. But there are also bigger things like like the attacks on public employees. Public employment in, in state and local government is the backbone of the black middle class in America. And that's because historically there's been less discrimination in the public sector than the private sector. There started to be equal employment initiatives in the, in the public sector as far back as the 1940s. And so for that reason, the gap between white and black wages on average is a lot smaller in the public sector. It's a hugely important sector, not only you know for the African-American community, not only for jobs in general, but for decently paying jobs. The percentage of African-American college graduates who are working in the public sector is much higher than for the population at large. So any attack on the public sector, in addition to whatever else it is, is an attack on the black middle class. And uh, another thing, let's see, um, uh, well, first of all, for our listeners, if you just joined us, we're talking with Gordon Lafer, who is author of 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America, One State at a Time, and uh, we're about a quarter past the hour. Um, and another thing that we've talked about actually on this show before with some other guests is things like wage stuff, and uh, I think your book brings out a imp really important thing that, uh, kind of level that uh, maybe 
most of us aren't aware of. Um, your book shows that more money is stolen out of employees' paychecks that is, employers simply refuse to pay them the wages they are legal, legally owed. More money is taken that way than is stolen in the combined total of all the countries, bank, convenience store, and gas station robberies combined. But big corporate lobbies have worked to block laws that would make it easier for workers to recover stolen wages. How do lobbyists defend this position? It is a good question. I don't know. I, I don't know how they defend it, but it's one of the things that shocked me writing this book because I thought that I was already like a 10 on the cynicism scale before I started doing this research. And then there were a couple of things that surprised me. And what you're talking about is one of them. I mean, there is an epidemic of stolen wages in America. It's people not getting paid minimum wage, not getting paid overtime, or many times just not getting paid. Like you work at a restaurant or you work on a construction job and you're just never given your last paycheck. And, you know, there's a, a ton of police whose job is to try to prevent gas station robberies, 7-Eleven robberies, or bank robberies. But there's almost nobody whose job is to police wage theft. And in some states, like Florida and some other conservative states, they zeroed out the state labor department. So there are zero state labor inspectors. Now, in theory, you can go to court. But if you got stolen $500 out of your paycheck, it could easily cost you more than $500 to hire a lawyer and go to court. So it's not a realistic remedy. So because of that, some places, some lo local cities and counties started creating things as ways to help workers deal with wage theft. One of the models was in Miami, Florida. Miami-Dade County created something in 2010 that works kind of like small claims court or almost like, you know, Judge Judy or one of the TV courts. It's very quick. It's very streamlined. It doesn't cost the taxpayers anything. And they started settling lots and lots of cases and collecting millions of dollars in back wages. And in response, the Chamber of Commerce and the Retail Federation and other business lobbies went into the state legislature and proposed a law that would have made it that would have made Miami's thing done away with, dead, and made it illegal for any other city or county to adopt any kind of law or ordinance or mechanism dealing with wage theft. Now, in Florida, it didn't ultimately pass, but something like that passed and is now law in Michigan and in Tennessee. I don't know how they defend it because, you know, if you're a whatever you want to be, right-wing, conservative, pro-capitalist, libertarian, anything I can think of, you must believe that people have the right to keep the wages that everybody agrees they've legally earned. So this is one of the things that to me shows that, uh, you know, the depth of hypocrisy and the extent to which you can't really take what people say on face value seriously. We have to look at what are these people doing and not what are they saying. And what it looks like they're doing is just in every way possible, even in ways that we might think is beyond the pale, trying to put more money into the pockets of the richest people in the country and the biggest corporations at the expense of everybody else. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I can understand maybe to the average sort of conservative voter or libertarian voter, they might think at some level, yes, you know, people should get paid for what they work and we value hard work. But it's pretty clear that a lot of these Republicans and legislators, um, if they believe that, they're not acting on that belief. They actually think that we should be taking money from working people and giving it to rich people. I <laughs> their actions sort of um, prove that. You know, let's further advantage the already advantaged. And, and you know, um, and, and the whole thing about wage theft is that I know 
in my own personal life, I, I used to work in the restaurant business for a little while before I got further along in academia. And there was huge pressure on managers, for example, to clock people out early. So over the course of a week, if somebody was closing the restaurant, they would lose six, seven, eight hours a week of their wages, you know, and multiply that by 10, 80 bucks a week. You know, I mean, it adds up. And, you know, these are people living on minimum wage. So it's definitely a problem and, and something that um, needs to be addressed. Um, going also another issue, I guess, that we could talk about is um, unemployment insurance. So um, more than just another safety net, um, what does unemployment insurance do for the American workforce, and how would the American workforce change without unemployment insurance? So I think unemployment insurance does three things. One is the thing that's most obvious, which is it puts a little bit of money in your pocket when you're in one of the hardest times in, in your life, trying to sustain yourself and your family when you're out of work. It's not a lot of money. I mean, it's like a couple hundred bucks a month in most places. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is, because there's a little bit of money, it lets you take a, be a little bit choosier about what your next job is. So if you're laid off at a decently paying job at a sawmill, let's say, you don't want to have the next day to take a job at McDonald's because it pays much less. And once you take another full-time job, you have no, usually you have no time or energy left to keep looking for a job. So to be able to say, all right, I want to take a little bit of time, you know, a couple of months, and look for something that pays close to what I used to make, to what my families depend on, something that's nearby where I'm not driving two hours there and two hours back to do the work, and that kind of stuff. So that's the second thing that it does is it lets people be a little bit choosy. Again, it's not a lot of money, but it's some cushion. And the third thing is what it does not for the individual, but for the whole economy, which is by letting people be choosy, by not having everybody take the worst, you know, furthest away, lowest paying job they can get right away, it prevents unemployment resulting in a flood of people coming into the labor market at low wages, which would then drive down wages for everybody. Now, unfortunately, the direction the corporate lobbies are moving in and have been pushing in with a lot of success is against all three of those things. So they've cut just the amount of money that you can get for, for unemployment insurance in many states. They've made it harder for you to qualify for unemployment insurance when you're laid off. But they've also done something else, which is they've started passing laws saying you can't hold out for a job that's like the job you had in terms of wages. So Tennessee, for instance, passed a law that says you can look for a job that has the same wage as you used to get paid only for 13 weeks. After that, you have to take any job that is offered to you as long as it pays at least three-quarters of what you used to make. And then a couple months after that, it goes down to 65%. So if you look at that, if we're in a situation like the Great Recession in 2010, 2011, if that law had been in place in 2011, there would have been 120,000 people in Tennessee who are forced to go back to work at two-thirds of their old wage. So that's bad for them. It's bad for their families. It's also bad for the rest of the economy because suddenly you have this huge flood of people coming in, driving down wages that make it harder for anybody else then to negotiate for a decent wage. So, But that's the direction that they've been moving in. Yeah, and that's, yeah, and I definitely not something that... <laughs> positive for the workforce or for, for those of us looking for employment or who are employed even. Um, and I know I uh, probably, they're, they're, your book covers a lot, so I might be bouncing around on topics for people in the audience. 
Um, so I apologize for that. But I did want to talk a little bit about education since it's become a hot button issue too, with uh, especially with the new education secretary and other things and charter schools and the whole controversy around them. But um, going historically back to after the city of New Orleans was hit with Hurricane Katrina, the Bush administration refused to pay for reopening the public schools, instead providing $45 million for charter schools to take their place. What did this do, or how did this affect education quality in New Orleans, and how are other states reacting to this change? So New Orleans is the first school district in America to be all charter schools, which it was as of a couple of years ago. And that was really done as a result of Hurricane Katrina, just like you said, they refused to pay to reopen public schools and instead funded charter schools. There is no evidence that the charter schools do any better than the public schools do or, or did or would have done. Um, <clears throat> so, But what you have now is a system of publicly funded but privately run schools that are not accountable to any democratically elected officials. There's no school board governing those schools. If you're a parent in New Orleans and you don't like the school you're in, you know you may choose from one charter school to another, but if you think they're all giving you a crappy education, in other cities, when your kid's getting a crappy education, there's at least somebody to go yell at. There's somebody who is politically accountable to that. Uh, or if you think this school is no good, it should be changed to something else, we want to elect people who can make that kind of policy change. You can't do that in New Orleans anymore. Despite the fact that there's no evidence, I mean, New Orleans is still a very low-performing school system. Despite that evidence, that model is being pushed in many other parts of the country. And it's not being pushed, the push is not coming from parents or students or teachers or community groups. It's coming from big corporate lobbies, and it's coming from Wall Street, which sees a lot of money to be made in the privatization of education. Uh, Wall Street, I would say, essentially looks at education kind of the same way they look at Social Security and wanting to privatize that. They look at education and say, this is $500 billion of government-guaranteed funding that's flowing through the economy every year, and we don't have a piece of it, or we don't have a big enough piece of it. And their idea for how to get a piece of it is to fundamentally change education into something that, for everybody except the children of the rich, is going to be dumbed down, pretty much just English and math, very low-wage, low high-turnover, untrained teachers, or above all for Wall Street, replacing human beings entirely with digital apps. One of the schools that I studied uh, that's a kind of darling of the venture capitalists is called Rocket Ship. In Rocket Ship schools, kids starting in kindergarten spend a quarter of their day in teacherless rooms hooked up to video game-based apps, like, you know, you have to solve the math problem to make your way across the river or something. And ALEC passes laws saying that these kind of classes that are basically just digital apps have to get the same dollars per student as a real class taught by an experienced teacher face-to-face -face in a real school. That makes the profit margins on these digital apps enormous, and that's why all the investment banks are in this. I know this may sound like convoluted conspiracy theory, but you can read my book, but you can read many other things besides trusting me to see this. This is part of why we now all of a sudden see Wall Street banks investing in Board of Education races in big cities like just happened in Los Angeles. So it's a, it's a very disturbing agenda of people looking to make a buck off of education at the expense of kids. Yeah, yeah, that's frightening, actually. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Um, and I know um, as far as uh, 
what can your study of the states tell us maybe about what more we can expect um, as we go through the Trump years with the Trump administration and, and the inter intersection between state and national politics? And what can we as uh, citizens or people of this country do to push back? Well, so to answer the first question first, I think you know there's been so much attention on Donald Trump that there has been not enough attention on the U.S. Congress and Senate, which obviously will have to approve sure. anything that becomes law. The Congress and Senate are just like the state legislatures in terms of their the politics of the Republican majorities. They're they're overwhelmingly bought and owned by the big corporate lobbies. That's who they're indebted to. We kind of saw that in the election, where except for Trump, every other Republican candidate for president had policies that were approved by the corporate lobbies and that you know paul ryan is somebody who's been supported by alec a lot of the, the republicans in the both in the congress and in the senate have those kind of connections so i think understanding what's happened in the states where the corporate lobbies have had a freer hand over the last decade gives us a roadmap to what to expect those kind of politicians to do at the federal level the grounds for pushing back, you know, the thing that I, I know the book can seem uh, kind of bleak, but the reason that I don't feel hopeless is that the one thing the corporate lobbies have not succeeded in doing with all their power is to convince people that their ideas are good ideas. People may vote for politicians for all different kinds of reasons, but when people have a chance to vote on a issue by issue basis, which happens mostly in states or cities where people have the right to vote on individual laws and ballot initiatives, when people have that right, there's a very broad bipartisan agreement that is in opposition to the corporate agenda. So, for instance, a majority of both Republicans and Democrats support a higher minimum wage, support a right to paid sick leave, support trained teachers and smaller class size, support a right to affordable health care. And you can see this in states, for instance, last fall, uh, Arizona, which is a very conservative state, voted for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. And in the same election, <clears throat> excuse me, by a much wider margin, voted to raise the state's minimum wage and create a right to paid sick leave for everybody in Arizona. So it's at least several hundred thousand people, if you look at the math, had to have done both those things. They voted for Donald Trump and they voted to raise the minimum wage and create a right to paid sick leave. So I think when we can campaign on issues rather than on individuals or parties, there's a, a broad bipartisan desire to create a more fair economy. Yeah, I think that's very true, and I, I think you're right, too, when you when you look at rank-and-file voters. I mean, it shows in those kind of elections, too, but when you talk about issues, I mean, the vast majority of Americans, for example, will like to repeal Citizens United. Um, anytime minimum wage um, increases go on the ballot now, at least if they're modest increases, they almost always pass overwhelmingly, um, even in conservative states and counties or municipalities. So I think that's very true that the corporate agenda is sort of narrowly supported by corporate interests and by the politicians that they back, and, and sometimes those politicians are able to fool the voters with their personality or other things, but, but when it comes to actually putting the uh, line items on a ballot, the voters reject what, what, the, what those people stand for and certainly reject the sort of corporate takeover of America, if you will. Um, so I guess um, with that, I guess the only other thing is um, for our listeners, is, is there anywhere, um, I recommend that they buy the book, first of all, and uh, we can put up a link on our site so that they can do that. I know most people know how to use a search engine, but we'll still make it easier for them. 
but is there any other place where they can follow you or any other final thoughts you'd like to share with our uh, listeners before we start? I, I actually have a website that was just newly created when the book was released that is gordonlafer.com, G-O-R-D-O-N-L-A-F-E-R.com. That um, okay. includes a link to the cheapest, the, play, the place you can buy the book for the cheapest, for the best discount, um, which is direct from, from Cornell University Press, and also includes some other interviews and some other articles that I've written about the same issues that are in the book. Great. And I, I recommend people getting it from Cornell University Press, because if you buy it on Amazon, you're probably indirectly helping out. So, <laughs> you know, we still want you to get the book, Very but you true. might as well get it from the University Press, um, so that you're not sort of um, conflicted there, but... Uh, on that note, uh, uh, thank you very much for uh, sharing your time with us. I hope you have a great weekend and, and very exciting book. And, that you know, um, I think it's both discouraging at times, but also I think there's enough in there, as you mentioned, enough signs of hope and enough empowerment that if we push back and we understand what we're up against, that we can uh, make a difference with it. So thank you again uh, for joining us, and I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, and thanks for having me on. Thank you. You bet.